right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Recorded this episode with uh, Will and Matt Korshen from Data Golf a couple weeks ago. Uh, I use their website all the time. We talk a lot about their website. It's just tremendous, tremendous statistical analysis. Is this episode for everyone? Absolutely not. It is data heavy. It is nerdy. But I definitely think you will walk away from this conversation a smarter golf fan, a little bit better understanding of what matters in professional golf and, you know, help you understand what you're watching on television. So I use their stuff all the time. Uh, again, this was my idea to have them on. It is not a free ad. It's a very free ad, but it's not an ad for data golf. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Before we get going, we have a lot of, uh, I guess we don't, we talk a lot of product on here. We talk a lot about, about Callaway's equipment. We don't talk a lot about uh, stuff for beginner golfers. We have a new beginner golfer in our group now that Tron, our resident curmudgeon, has decided to play golf left-handed. He's going to tell you about the Big Bertha B21 driver. Yeah, and I would say it's it's probably not just for beginners, but people who have been playing a long time but also aren't very good. Uh, my dad would be a prime candidate for this. Uh, but yeah, it's Callaway sent me the B21 about four or five weeks, actually probably six weeks ago now. Been playing it. It is the slice killer. There's a ton of draw bias in it. Playing lefty, the big left miss has been a big, big, big issue for me. And I've been absolutely striping this thing. Been hitting fairways. Yeah, just like I, the color scheme is unbelievable. It's that na it's navy with a little bit of red accent on it, a little carbon on the top. It is kind of reminds me of the, the Great Big Bertha Alphas they came out with, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. Really, really sharp colors and still has flash face and all that, but it is... Very, very, very forgiving. We're out in Oregon right now. It has helped me survive this trip. So you heard it there from TC. Go to CallawayGolf.com slash BigBerthaB21. That's CallawayGolf.com slash BigBerthaB21. Without any further delay, here is Matt and Will from Data Golf. All right, three different locations. I guess two different countries. I'm going to introduce first. We're going to wake up, welcome on Will Corshane just to try to help to, uh, help differentiate the voices here. Will, thank you for joining us. Hey, how's it going? It's great to be on. Doing great here. And your brother, I assume, Matt Corshane. Yeah, yeah, we are related. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, of course. I've uh, I've followed you guys and I've cited you guys for you know many many years now. Really, uh, I had never knew who was behind it. You guys are you know. Kind of, uh, you have to go to the contact us page of your website to to actually uh, see who's behind it. But uh, I want to start super boring. Kind of, uh, just tell listeners what you guys do, what your background is, and kind of in my mind, I assume you guys are educated or well educated in the world of statistics because the way you guys piece things together, it's not as sim it's 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 maybe a bit more complicated than I think what a lot of people are used to in strokes gain or at least understanding relationships between statistics. So I'm wondering if you could kind of take us through what your guys' background is um, and how that ca came to be with Data Golf. I guess it all started with, uh, I, I just got out of my master's. I was studying economics and Matt was still in his PhD studying the same thing. So we had this background in stats and we both grew up playing a ton of golf. So every day in the summer, basically, we would be out with our other brother, actually, just playing golf. So it was just a natural entryway, I guess, for me after, after I got out of the school, just to test all the stat stuff I've been learning on, on this golf data set. 
and then from there, yeah, we just started a really basic blog, just like general, uh, maybe like tiny misconceptions we kind of saw. It, nothing serious. It, like I said, it was really just to to learn uh, and, and develop our skills so we could get a real job, or at least for me. And then slowly we started going more the predictive route, and we had, and then we created this model, and then. Before we knew it, we wanted to build this website around this around the model, and that's when we got into the whole web development side. So that's been something I've kind of spent most of the time on. Um, yeah. So before we knew it, in like from two years after we started, we we had this website that was doing okay, I guess. And is this a full time job for you, for both of you guys now? Yeah. Yeah. So since I guess I don't know if I'll say, but so we started it in the summer of 2016, and then since. Uh, April of 2019, the Masters week, actually, the Tiger one. Uh, we've been full-time on it since then, yeah. Well, to anyone listening, I promise this is not a, uh, a paid-for episode. It was my idea to have, have you guys on. I want to do it because it's a site I use every, every single week to prepare me to talk about golf, and uh, it really is an incredible user experience. There's no ads, super clean interface, so I have no problem giving you guys a free, a free ad on that. So with that in mind, I want uh, you guys to take me through kind of some of the things that are available on your site. First being like true strokes gain. Take us through your relationship with strokes gained. Obviously, the Mark Brody system that you know a lot of people have have you know become synonymous with golf and statistics. Uh, but what true strokes gained is, how it relates to strokes gained, and kind of what you thought when you uh, got to know the, the the strokes gained system. So true strokes gained. I should I should preface pretty much everything we say today is. With uh, Mark Brody, realistically, has looked at everything that we've also done. So a lot of it is just building off of stuff that he has also looked at. So, but so yeah, what True Strokes Gained is, or what the purpose of it was, or is rather, uh, is to like adjust for field the differences in field strength across tournaments. So, so Strokes Gained, as Mark Brody defined it, is just how much better a player performs than the PGA Tour average. And so, if you look at things at the round level total strokes gained for a round is just how many shots you beat the field by. So all we're doing with true strokes gain is we're trying to say, uh, we're trying to find a way to compare uh, performances in like a web.com event or sorry, corn Ferry event to a PJ tour event. And so, so true strokes gain is just how many shots you beat the field by uh, plus how good that field was essentially. So for example, if there's two fields that we deem to be one stroke different in terms of player quality, that would mean if you beat the worst field by one shot versus shooting the field average against the better field, that would be the same value for true strokes gain. And that, that was likely a mouthful, but uh, at a high level, that's what true strokes gain is trying to do. It's trying to give you one number from every tournament across any professional tour, and now we've extended it to, to even uh, amateur events. Um, we're just trying to give you one number that you can directly compare across tournaments and say these two performances were equal, given that they have the same uh, true strokes gain value. Interesting. So is, is it safe to say there's a bit of noise in just the straight strokes gain stats that you would see on PJTour.com just because it doesn't necessarily factor in uh, field strength on a week-to-week basis? Yeah, exactly. So if you see Ben and Todd gains a bunch of strokes off the tee at the John Deere, it's obviously very hypothetically hit at the exact same at the Tour Championship. Obviously, his off-the-tee numbers will be a lot lower at the, at the Tour Championship. But ideally, after we correct, his true strokes gained at each event should be the same in, in off the tee. 
Well, I've given you guys some homework, and we're going to get to some of that in a bit, kind of covering some misconceptions in golf and what some of maybe your favorite stats are that you've come across. But I want to talk about statistics in general for a second. The reason I'm asking this or, or kind of want to go down this path is even trying to explain like probability to DJ, who tries to just like stuff me in a locker every time I try to like nerd out about stats. Uh, it, I'm just like, I, I, I'm not schooled in statistics well enough to be able to explain to him like how probability works. But in general, what do you wish people like understood about statistics that, you know, may not even, it, it's golf specific, like what you're experiencing in the golf world, but it could relate to any kind of statistics. What, what do you see out there that you say like, man, I wish people just understood this better. Well, I think, well, I'll start with this. I'm not sure if, I think it'll lead into general statistics problems, but like, I think one thing that really bugs me with golf is just people not appreciating just how random it is like just i think a big issue in, in in golf analysis i guess is just put putting a lot of meaning on really small samples of data and you see this like manifest in a lot of different ways in golf like people care a lot about how players perform on certain courses even though they've only played four rounds there i guess just appreciating that like golf performance specifically is is super random and really you need a ton of data to make a distinction between uh two golfers in terms of how good they are. Honestly, I totally agree with you that like probability is just a very kind of ill-defined saying and it is it is hard to explain to people. Uh, I think yeah, I do think there's the basic problem of just people don't understand that like for example, when we predict tournaments, the favorite like this week the favorite is Justin Thomas according to our model and he has an 8% chance of winning. So yes, in theory we're predicting Thomas he's the most likely golfer to win, but there's still, you know, a 92% or 93% chance he doesn't win. So I guess the basic thing of just understanding that, I don't know, just if we're saying something that has a 10% chance of happening, even though that we think that's the most likely player to win, it's still on the whole, it's an unlikely event uh, for that to happen. And in your model, if, so if we, we go in on a, you know, you can go live during a golf tournament, right? And you can go in and see at any moment, almost up to the date, up to the, I don't know how often you guys really refresh it. It seems like you, once you manually refresh it, it seems very current, but you can get kind of live percentage chance that somebody's going to make the cut, live percentage chance they're going to top five, live percentage chance that they're going to win. And built in with that is, I guess this is a question, is it, you know, is it the, the skill level of the player is built into that as well as the skill levels of the players around them? Can you kind of explain how you're able to kind of lie, in a live way predict or kind of give the probability of somebody finishing a certain way in a tournament? Yeah, what you said is right. We're, so we're taking into account the skill level of every player in the tournament. And like when we say skill level, so skill level to us, that just means what we expect a player to shoot going forward. And how we come up with that number is mainly, like I just said, like golf is super random. So it's mainly based off of pretty historical data, like the last two years, let's say, weighted in a like recent performance is weighted more. And so once once the live model gets rolling, we have our skill, skill estimates for each golfer. So from that, we can say how likely each player is to make a birdie or a bogey or a par on each hole. And that also needs to take into account how hard the holes are as well. But then once, I think this is probably another misconception, like once the tournament starts going, it's not like we're updating Rory's, like if Rory bogeys the first two holes, so pre-tournament Rory would have been super highly rated. If he bogeys the first two holes, we don't make a big adjustment to his skill level. It's still just because it's golf is very random. So it's like a slight tweak downwards where maybe adjust his ability down a bit, but um, not too much. So the main thing that's updating live is just the leaderboard is changing. The golf course conditions are becoming known to us because at the start of the day, we don't really know how the course is playing. We just base it off historical stuff. So it's mostly 
the big swings are obviously just people making birdies and stuff like that. Yeah, and if somebody has an 80% probability of winning the tournament with three holes to play and they don't win it, it doesn't mean the model was wrong. It just meant that basically whatever happened was much, much, much less likely than uh, than the just you know cruising to a finish would be likely. Yeah, exactly. Like Especially around the cut line, if we say there's an 80% chance the cut's going to be minus one, like one guy making a putt can really change a lot. So, I mean, we've been in hot water a couple of times. People are, I guess they're just taking a swing at us a bit on Twitter, just saying like, your cut probability sucks. Like, what is this? <laughs> and it's so hard because they, they're they watching the tournament live. They see the course conditions, how they're changing. And our model is sometimes if the course is changing a lot in the afternoon, our model is just like desperately trying to keep up because it needs the scores to come in and then rearrange things. So, yeah, I mean, 80% chance is if it keeps on not happening, it's bad. But yeah, a one-time thing, 80% chance doesn't happen. It's okay. Well, all right. I've built you guys up a little bit. I've got to take you down a peg here because there's there's an article in your site that's titled The Relationship Between Driving Distance and Performance on the PGA Tour. I've read it multiple times. I feel like you are doing your absolute best to dumb it down for someone like me. But I'll read one paragraph and be like, oh, yeah, see, I'm right. Like Driving distance is just way, way too important of a skill. And the next paragraph will be like, huh, maybe it's not. And then the next one, I'm like, huh, is it? So I imagine it's a very complicated discussion and argument and that that's there's a lot of data you put behind it. But I just want to know, is it something that's maybe easier to explain via podcast, kind of how the relationship between driving distance maybe has evolved in you know the last 20, 30 years? And is it trending a certain way? And, and what that all actually means? I think people hear a lot of you know, the PJ Tours of Driving Contest and, you know, guys that bomb it or have just an advantage every single week. But what is what does your guys' research and data say about driving distance relationships? I mean, first off, I agree that article is it's 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 a bit of it's a pretty big slog to get through that. So I'm happy to hear you tried to go through it multiple times. It also are there there are conflicting conclusions, I think. So I was actually reading it earlier today to try and refresh myself on it. I think I think the main takeaway that I had from it was like, so first, when people are trying to are asking the question, how important is driving distance and how has that changed over time? I'm interpreting that to mean how much of an advantage is it to be, say, in the 10th percentile of driving distance? So in the top 10 percent of guys on tour, how much of an advantage that is that today versus 1983? And so that was the time period we looked at. And the thing that I was surprised by is it hasn't changed that much, I don't think. Like, so we would we would basically look at, OK, if you're this much better than the average player at driving, what does that translate to in terms of strokes gained per round? And it did dip. So basically from the 83, it, it declined a bit down to 2004, which is when the stroke scene era started, at least the data collection part. And then it's kind of, it's risen up pretty drastically since then to in total be a bit higher than it was in 83. So distance to me has not changed that much, how much it impacts performance. But what has changed a lot is uh, accuracy. The importance of accuracy has pretty steadily declined over time and so maybe that's what we see more when like because i agree like today you look at the, the top players in the game and nobody hits it particularly accurately um so that might be what's showing up in the analysis i think the other point that the analysis just doesn't speak to is like a lot of people in the architecture community i think they just think a lot of courses are becoming obsolete just because guys are hitting it so far and this doesn't really speak to that this is sort of like saying okay given we're, we're playing the courses that we're playing today and the ones we were playing in the past, we're just going to look at how much of an advantage of an advantage it is to hit it far. And I don't know. I think I, my takeaway still is also 
it has even if it has increased it's not to me it's not like a massive increase but i don't know we can quibble about whether it's the right balance or not right now i'm not really sure what the answer to that is we don't will and i don't really engage in that too much i think i think one other issue is that uh, driving distance is highly correlated with approach skill so when we're when you're watching on tv or just following a season of golf you realize that oh rory's really like all these guys who bomb it are also the best players in the world. And I think too much of that is being attributed to their length. Like obviously the skill set that goes with hitting it far and relatively straight is also going to help you on approach, which is another incredibly important aspect of the game. So I think that could be clouding people's judgment as well on the issue. Well, so I don't know if this is the right term, statistical term, but is it kind of self-selecting in a way in that, you know the, the the population of say 2019 golfers on the PGA Tour by nature is just. But let me just ask it that way: Is it because of the importance of driving? It is selected the guys that have the status and are playing the most golf. It is selected, you know, maybe skewing towards great drivers of the golf ball, right? So if it's not, you know, to be in the top 10 percent now compared to normal or, or way back in the day isn't, you know, whatever that normal is now has shifted so far towards being long that it still is really hard to separate yourself. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that could be true. I think if you're just saying that right now, basically, the only way for anybody to get on the PGA Tour now, one of the necessary conditions is for you to bomb it, essentially. And I don't mean that literally, but yes, that's what I'm getting at. Okay. Yeah, then I think that's right. Like Our analysis would be be picking up the fact that, yeah, right now, if you're in the 10th percentile compared to average, you pick up this many strokes, but yeah, it could be the case that just in general, like a Luke Donald type player, if Luke Donald is, is 20 years old now, that type of player, like, yeah, they just can't get on tour. Maybe not literally, but yeah, I think that that holds some water for sure. And our analysis doesn't really speak to that. Yeah. So in that, it's almost like we're comparing maybe the A drivers to what is an A minus driver now, when in prior years, it was more likely we were comparing A drivers to C drivers. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so. Like, are you maybe you're saying like there there was no group of DJ Brooks, Rory, JT, all like there there were like there was maybe one or two of those guys, and now there's a bunch of them, and that's just the addition of all these bombers has just threw some people off the back end who were probably not long drivers of the ball. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Herbal Active, and guys, I have to admit we are on the road right now in Oregon. I did not bring my CBD with me. I left it with my fiance. Uh, That's how good of a fiance I am. I am missing out. I haven't even come close to hitting the green in my recovery scores. I've talked a lot about how the CBD has helped me sleep better at night, helped me get better rest, truly lower my heart rate overnight, and things like that. Herbal Active, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. That is, of course, the CBD supplier for all things no laying up. Go to their website, check out what they're, you know, the questions they have on their frequently asked questions, what the product is. A lot of people still don't understand what CBD is, how it helps you, all the things it can help you with, anxiety, joint pain, headaches, anything. Go read about it. Go understand why the water-based solution is much better for your body. And users can use promo code NLU20 at HerbalActive.com to get 20% off all of your orders. U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. That's HerbalActive. Use promo code NLU20 for all of your CBD needs at Herbal Active. Now let's get back to Matt and Will. And, and stuff that I found really interesting that you guys have talked about too is it, improving like one standard deviation better uh, than like tour average, say. And I was kind of, I hadn't really thought of it this way, but 
asking the question of if you could improve from, you know, in, by one standard deviation in any one category, be that strokes gain driving, strokes gain approach, around the green or putting, what is, you know, keeping all other variables constant, what is the category you would want to improve uh, one standard deviation better of if you could just magically, you know, wave a wand and say, I'm now one standard deviation better in this category? Yeah, so either, this is actually one of our misconceptions that we kind of, that we kind of wrote down. So yeah, either, and it's maybe not so much a misconception. So either, yeah, either off the tee or, or approach. So I think those are definitely, those categories have the greatest variance and like uh, skill differences across players. And it's pretty amazing that off the tee does because obviously you only hit 13, 14 drives around, whereas you hit more approach shots than that. So on a per shot basis, off the tee is definitely the biggest category for skill differences. Um, and yeah, the misconception we were kind of alluding or I'm alluding to is just how important putting is. Um, so yeah, when you look at yeah putting in the long term, there's just not that much difference between how players have putted for like if you pick up, if you get like two or three seasons of data, which is how much you need to really understand how good of a putter somebody is. Um, there's just yeah a standard deviation difference in putting skill is not that large. And the other thing with off the tee is it's it's a much more repeatable skill. So I could go play a hundred rounds with Rory, and I'll never beat him off the tee, no, no matter what happens. Whereas I might out putt him like ten percent of the time or something. So if you improve by a lot in a very predictable or repeatable category, it's going to improve just your overall skill level into the future. Well, before we bust through any more of these misconceptions, so the, the homework I gave you guys was just kind of, and I try to do this whenever we have, you know, stats related guys like Justin Ray on, I try not to put you too much on the spot of like, hey, entertain me with some misconceptions about stats and golf or whatnot. But I asked you to put together maybe five misconceptions. Uh, I think you just touched on one of them there, but I wonder if you can just kind of walk us through uh, if you had to pick, you know, your top list of things that are like, hey, this is kind of not accurate. What are they? I think the main one is, and maybe people don't think this, but this is kind of the the feeling I get is that like, professional golf is just a massive pool of players who with the right break here or there could be on the PGA Tour. But with the true strokes gain concept that Matt was talking about at the start, we can see very clearly the skill differences between tours and it's, it's very significant. So the skill gap between the PGA Tour and the European Tour, for example, is on average one stroke per, per round, which is a lot. There's not a bunch of players kind of stuck on the lower tours who, who given the right chance, would do well on the PGA Tour. Generally speaking, they'll they'll get through quite easily. And examples of that might be like Aaron Wise, who just basically he, he did he did really well on the Corn Ferry Tour and just made his way up. And Will Zalatoris is doing it right now, although he's he's obviously quite young. Um, but he he had a few starts on the PGA Tour, and now he's just kind of waltzing through the the Corn Ferry Tour. And the, probably the best example was actually Victor Hovland at the Corn Ferry Finals last year. Like before they started, our model had him like, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but I think he was like an 85% chance of getting his PGA Tour card. So he was just basically operating on another level as to from everyone else in that, in that field. Is there anything you can point to? And I, I, I try to ask the players this on any chance I get, and there's never really that great of an answer. Or a, I, it's just, it's a, just a hard thing, I guess, to describe. But if you were just to summarize by, you know, you're saying that a PGA Tour level player is, you know, far and above, I guess that, that talent gap is very real. How would you describe that talent gap? Is it a summation of all the different skills or is it, is it something that really points in a different direction that says, hey, right here, these guys are so consistently that much better than the next level tour guy? Yeah, it's a little hard because there's no, on the development tours, there's no like, detailed shot level data to sort of look at like the strokes in categories. 
but I would just guess that kind of what I said earlier about the standard deviation thing. I would I would assume it's uh, it's just long game. That's just where the biggest differences are differences are between pros. Um, but yeah, I don't have a good a very specific answer for why they're different. Um, I do think like to what Will was saying about the development tours, like it's not it's not so much that the the skill gaps are like. I guess you just when you, when you analyze a lot of data from like over a couple years for golfers on the different tours, that's when you really see the differences. Like I think if you were to just and you hear this all the time about going to the range at a corn Ferry tour event or something, like the guys look like they hit the ball as well as PJ tour guys. So and I think on any given day you can't really tell the difference, but yeah, you do over time just see that the gaps are big. Like I guess to put it in context, like we when we analyzed the Canadian tour and the uh, Latino America tour for like 2014 to 2016, we were looking at if there was any guys on those tours that performed for the entire season, if their average performance was like equivalent to an average tour player. And it only happened three times. And it was like Aaron Wise, Ryan Ruffles, and uh, Dan McCarthy, I think, who I actually don't, don't know who that is. But I don't know exactly why there's that gap, but there is a pretty big gap, I would say. That's interesting. I think because, yeah, there's, you know, there's a ton of low scores that get shot on lower developmental tours. And I, you know, I think we all, you know, follow Monday morning, uh, a case of the golf on Twitter and see all the scores that don't get through on Monday qualifiers. But I caddied in a Monday qualifier that was at last fall and 65 got you in a playoff or something like that. And after caddying it, I was kind of like, Oh yeah, like that, that makes more sense. Like that was, <laughs> that wasn't all that difficult. I think, is, is there something? Is that something you guys look at? Kind of the difficulty of golf courses, how that compares on the PGA Tour to European Tour and other developmental tours. Is the gap really, uh, you know, really separate talent that much? Yeah, we haven't looked at that much. Like, are you saying in terms of whether easier on easier courses it's harder to separate? No, uh, I'm just saying oh. like it, there's just scoring in general. I mean, okay. you know, because like I said, you can just see you know, scores on the Corn Ferry Tour and on, you know, Canada Tour and mini tours everywhere. I mean, I I played a mini tour event two months ago where the winner shot 60 in the final round. And I was just like, how are these guys not have, don't have status anywhere? It just blew my mind. But when you go take these, you know, take professionals to bigger golf tournament or bigger golf courses that, uh, you know, test a wider variety of skill. I just, I didn't know if, if what you guys had looked at showed like PGA Tour golf courses are way harder or way easier than people think they are. I would think harder though. Well, yeah, we haven't looked at that too much, but an interesting point like related to that is because once we added all the amateur data to our database, we can see like who all the top amateurs were as they turned pro and which ones have succeeded and which ones have not. Like, for example, obviously, Rom and Spieth were the best amateurs we've ever seen since 2011. But then there's also guys like Patrick Rogers was right up there with them. Chris Williams, who I'm not sure if you remember him, and Peter Uline, Ollie Schneider James as well. So... It, I think it's possible that maybe on like on the college circuit, the courses are set up in such a way where maybe driving is not as important just because the guys I just mentioned seem to struggle more off the tee than a Rom or a Hovland or a Wolf would. Yeah, like if you're just trying to get trying to get at the fact, yeah, like the college courses are, like we've talked about it, like with Uline and Schneider Jans, those are guys who I think of as players who can really uh, rip long irons. Like maybe it's the case that they, they're more suited to these shorter college courses where you can just, you can get away with not hitting drivers. Back to the original question, like I do think for sure the courses are easier at the lower tours. And it's even like, I remember I've talked, one time I had a phone call with a uh, mini tour player and he was saying how he was using uh, Mark Brody's strokes gains uh, stats, which you can just, you basically just put in the distance uh, in the line, it'll spit out your strokes gain numbers. 
and he was saying how his numbers were like like he was pretty much playing like an average PJ Tour player and I think the so what's going on there is just that even like conditional on the distance of the course it's obviously the case tour courses are just set up way harder um and so I think I wouldn't be surprised if most the, the raw scoring average across tours is pretty similar but then given that we know the player quality is different it means that yeah the courses are just easier on the lower circuits I feel like this is something I should know better than I do and I feel like I you know ask it maybe every six months how it actually works with strokes gain and that it doesn't factor in it is just basically your lie and you know your yardage right it doesn't factor in if you're short-sighted or if you're at, uh, have a bad angle or behind a tree or anything like that is that how, how do, I guess how did can you explain you know maybe that's a Brody question necessarily I'm sure you guys understand it but how exactly stroke gain works and whether you know there is uh, if there is noise within it other than what we already talked about what is it yeah what you said is correct it's, it's only factoring in distance and lie and so so what it is is basically Brody is estimated using shot data from uh, a few, like many years, it updates every year, I guess, just how many shots from every location, where location is based off of distance and lie, so fairway rough, native area, just how many strokes it takes a tour pro to, to hole out from there. And then strokes gained is just how many strokes it took you relative to that baseline. So yeah, when you're, and people have looked at this, and Brody has looked at this, I guess the reason it's just distance and lie is because well, it's simpler for, there's like very few assumptions. Like once you start trying to make it more complicated and factoring in more things, it just, you get, you run into sample size issues and it just gets more complicated. And it's also harder for fans to understand. So what you said is true. Like when you're short-sided, your strokes gained are going to be like artificially lower just because it was a harder shot than what the function indicated. But like in the long term, it's hard to say. Like maybe there's, in the long term, it should like wash out, but there might be guys who just, there are guys probably who consistently go at flags and get short-sided. And so they could have like a bias in their around the green uh, strokes game. Well, all right. Well, I kind of distracted you guys from some of the other misconceptions. I'm not sure if you have any others uh, written down or uh, other, other priority items you think for people uh, that uh, you think should be cleared up. Yeah. One that I had, uh, I kind of got reminded of it. I was just watching live from uh, the PGA last night and Brandon was saying how after Rory won the 2014 PGA, so that was to win back-to-back majors. He was saying how he, he thought at that point Rory could win like 15 or 20. And it just made me think that people just vastly overestimate the number of majors that they reasonably expect players to win. I think it might even be the case if you added up like all the majors that some uh, pundit predicted they would add up to like three times as many as the number of majors that there actually are. But even without that, I think like if you look at this week, like I mentioned it earlier, like our favorite this week is Thomas at 8.5%. And that's, so he's the best player in the world. So right away you have, let's say, let's just say rounded up to 10%. The best player in the world has a 10% chance of winning a major. So for him, for us to expect him to have won a major, he needs to play 10 majors where he's the best player in the world. And so right away, that to me is kind of surprising. Like the best player in the world is only going to win one out of every 10 majors. And then on top of that, when you think of a guy's career going forward, you don't expect anybody to be the best player in the world. Whenever somebody is the best player in the world, unless it's Tiger in the 2000s, it's because they're playing above, like, expectation. So really, like, we, we did this whole analysis for John Rahm, and we, we had this projected majors at, like, 2.3, and that's based off of how we think his skill is going to evolve over his career. And he's currently, like, the best guy. Like, we're the most optimistic on him going forward. So I don't know. To me, that's – maybe it's not a misconception. I don't know exactly what people think, but to me, that's surprisingly low, I would say, for a guy like Rahm who's got, you know – 
20, 25 years of good golf left in him. No, that that makes a ton of sense. I think it's like after Rory won the four, I think every year he didn't win one. We looked and said, whoa, what happened this year? Whoa, now it's been two years. Now it's been three. When in reality, if we look at from 2011 to 2019, him winning four is a lot, right? Yeah, I guess him winning four was the big anomaly, not him not winning for a few years. I guess more than that now. but Right. But that, uh, if spanning a decade, if you're winning four majors, no matter how talented you are and you're not named Tiger, that is an enormous decade. It almost seems like by the end of it, people had soured on it. But in that regard, I guess, are we seeing what, what are we seeing with Kepka? I mean, is that just blow away any statistical projection or anything you would reasonably expect to see from one person? And do you see, I guess, specific to him, his skill level and the fact that he's won three PGA Tour events and four majors? Is it that much more, I guess, absurd that he's had such great success in majors? I mean, yeah, like basically all of the last two years, we've been really negative on him leading into majors. And obviously everyone else is super high. So, yeah, the narrative is... How'd that work out for you? Not well. (laughs) (laughs) We're hoping for a better, better week this week. Yeah, so the narrative, I guess, is that he doesn't try or he's not focused or... A better story might be like the major type setups suit his game really well. But either way, like we actually looked into that as well this week for the PGA Championship. And yeah, the, the PGA Championship do, does seem to favor bombers and good approach players, which Brooks is both of those, but it, not as much as he's been overperforming in the past at majors. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough one. And it's pretty hard to argue the other side because they've been right for two years running. So right. <laughs> Well, how would you like if if we we're going through an experiment here and we said over under like career majors, I'm I'm putting you on the spot with these numbers, but if we said over under career majors for Rory for his whole career, what would you if what would you set that over under at where you'd be really tough to tough to pick either side? Uh, I guess I guess 5.5. What's he at? He's yeah. at 4 right now. Yeah, I he's guess 5.5. 5. Yeah. Just cuz he's similar to to Rom, I guess, as our, but obviously he's just older, so I'm sort of just cutting Rom's kind of in half. Um, yeah, I would say 5.5. Does anything stick out to you? I guess, like if I was to ask the same for Spieth, is it is it 3.1 or is it is it more than four or what? What would uh, what would you say for Spieth? Yeah, Spieth. I mean, I think Will and I both have a soft spot for Spieth because he's just. I mean, we really want him to do well, just because he's just the demons he's clearly battling with. On the short putts and on the tee shots, especially, it's uh, rough to watch. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, our model right now, just because we're somewhat short-term based, I guess, in the sense that we only look at maybe the last two years, so we're not really capturing the fact that Spieth is like was so good when he was uh, back in 2015, 16, 17. That's sort of like not really part of our model. But I do think that's relevant for him going forward because there's a chance that he does get things back and and then. Uh, he is able to win more majors, but yeah, I would say 3.5. I don't know. It's I'm not so optimistic that he can get it back. Yeah, a slightly depressing note on Spieth is that in November of 2011, we actually had him ranked 39th best in the world. So he would have been a freshman in college, I think, and which was really good. I think Rom turned pro when, and he was 36th best in our rankings. But now Spieth is actually 51st, and he's estimated to be 0.2 shots worse per round than he was when he was 17 or 18, I guess. So, yeah, it's probably not a good thing for him to think about. But we got to wrap this up. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I don't want to. I don't want to hear those numbers. That's that's not what we're here for. Uh, I don't know how many more misconceptions we have here, but these are these are very entertaining to me. What's next on the list? If you got any more? 
Uh, we can talk a little bit about Fee now lately. I know DJ was giving you a tough time the other day. Tell me, just tell him how wrong he was. Just tell him. Yeah, DJ's how... completely wrong. That's yes, <laughs> thank you. Knew it no, I don't know. So, so as you mentioned, we have our live model, which, so before every final round, we have the win probabilities for uh, every player. And like you said, the nice thing about the probabilities is that it takes into account how many shots back he is, who's around him. Like, is he one shot, if he's one shot ahead of, uh, Adam Long, that's very different than being one shot ahead of Rory and DJ. So it doesn't treat all 54 hole situations the same, which, which is nice. So, so what we can actually do is just go through Fino's win probabilities. And from that, we can develop an expectation of how many wins he should have in total, given the situations he's given himself. Mm-hmm. Love so that. just a quick recap. So 11 times since we started our live model in the start of the 2018 wraparound season. Um, he's been, he's had a better than 5% chance of winning 11 times. And I think better than 10% four, I think. So if you add up all of his win probabilities, it adds up to 2.4. So basically from that time span, 2018, the fall of 2017 onward, we would expect him if he performed as we predicted roughly, we would expect him to have around two wins, or 2.4 to be exact. Uh, some notable situations was he was 57% to win at the 2019 HSBC, and he played well that day, but Xander played unbelievably, and he ended up losing in a playoff. And then the waste management this season, he was 34% to win, and obviously Webb made those putts, I think, down the stretch. I mean, Fino didn't, he didn't like play great. He could have closed them out early, if I remember correctly, but I mean, he didn't, I wouldn't say he choked or anything. So, I mean, those two events right there are about roughly one expected win. So, and he did win the Puerto Rico Open. So we got to give respect to that. But it's, yeah, I guess he's always won about two times less than we would have expected, which I guess you can take from that what you want. I guess it could serve both sides. Yeah, it's a it's been a combination, I think, of not the best play. It's not like he's played flawless golf and just gotten robbed every time. But at the same time, we're talking about like it's almost like a batting for a really good hitter in Major League Baseball to go, like to go. You're going to go through a slump every now and then just because you're every time you take the bat, the odds are still not in your favor that you're going to get a hit. And you can have it, you know, a span of a decent period of time where you don't get a hit. And same for a really good player, a span of a period of time to not get a win. So I think that helps and hurts me at the same time. 2.4 expected wins. You would have, you would think that he would have gotten one out of it in the last four years. And the fact that he hasn't gotten one doesn't help me. But it's, I would think it's not that outrageous that somebody could have an expected win of a win in, during that time period of around 2.4, but still have zero wins. Is that fair to say? I think so. I mean, to be fair, we haven't looked at, I only looked at Fee now so far. We're actually going to create a, a, pay, a page on our site where you can dig into this stuff. But like another thing is that there's like probably 60, 70 guys out on the PGA Tour who have legitimate chances of winning. So there's bound to be one person who seems to be getting the raw end of the deal would be one argument for Finau. Just given that there's going to be some guys who win more than they should just due to playing well at certain times or luck in certain cases. And then there's going to be guys like Finau, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he's not doing himself many favors. I think that's fair to say. But we're not totally going to write him off. Yeah. All right. That's fair. I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, any more misconceptions or are we, are we run the list dry? I think the list is pretty much dry. I had all good rounds start with a bogey here, but that's just so ridiculous that I don't think anybody actually believes that. <laughs> <laughs> is there what? Is there some data in there? I mean, 
the only reasonable interpretation that I have to that statement is that on the 17 holes that follow the bogey, the player that made the bogey plays better than when he played the birdie. That's the only thing that makes sense. Clearly, if a guy bogeys the first hole, just that one, that one stroke right there, he's not going to make that up because I guess that's kind of related. People, I always used to, when we had the live model I, and just following it right at the start of the event, I always used to be kind of stunned at how big the probability swings are after one hole for a player who makes a birdie. But you just kind of, you don't realize how important a shot is. Like birdieing the first hole is essentially like starting the tournament as Justin Thomas versus starting the tournament as a guy who's one shot worse than Thomas, which is like the 40th ranked player in the field. So it does make a big difference. So that's why, yeah, that statement kind of just is dead on arrival. Hmm. Uh, I get what you're saying though. You're more likely to play the last 17 holes better if you make bogey on the first hole than if you birdie the first hole. I totally believe that. Yeah, so I don't think that's true, but uh, <laughs> that's a reason. It's possible. Like, when I actually looked at it, that, that's what I was looking at, and I didn't find. I don't think anything super interesting, but I kind of. Uh, I didn't look too closely, so it, it could it be. It could crazy. also just be like more relatable for an amateur because bogeys are not that bad for like the average player. So, like, whereas if a pro bogeys, it's pretty. It's a pretty bad situation usually. Well, so we're as we're recording this PJ Championship week, it's going to come out in a couple of weeks, and we're going to be somewhat uh, inching towards the Tour Championship. What do you think of how that tournament sets up from a probability standpoint? Like, did that was that a fun exercise for you guys to look into how that works? You know, staggering the fields, starting somebody at ten under. Uh, what do you think of kind of how all that has played out? Yeah, it was pretty intriguing. Like when we were running the simulations to see how big the, the win probability was going to be for the leading guy. I think it was interesting. I can't really remember anything that really stuck out. Like, on, I kind of don't like it, ignoring the data for a second. I kind of just don't like it because it's no longer uh, kind of a real tournament to me. Like, if Tiger had won the Tour Championship, I don't even know if, if, like, if, if there's an asterisk on that or what for his win totals. But, yeah, it's a cool concept. And I think, I think we ended up having, like, assuming all players were equal, the guy who uh, starts in the lead had, like, a 30% win probability. Whereas normally at the Tour Championship, it would be like seven or eight. So it's, yeah, I think they did it pretty well. One of my favorite things uh, on your guys' site, and probably the first place I go every week, is just looking at the course fit tool. Um, I'm wondering if you could explain what that what that is. And, you know, again, this is uh, just looking at Harding Park for this week, which as uh, is in the rear view as people are listening to this and seeing the like, Torrey Pines as being the most similar course. How do you guys come up with that? How do you chart out? how uh, a course fit tool and how it compares really to other golf courses. So it's all based just on which types of players perform well at each course. So essentially what we did is just before every tournament, we have an estimate of each golfer's skill in like five attributes, which are uh, driving distance, driving accuracy, and then approach play around the green and putting. And then we just look using somewhat, uh, fancy statistical methods. Just, we try and figure out which courses the guys who, hit it above average distances, play well at. And by play well, I mean play above the performance level that they they have at all the other courses. And so when we say two courses are similar, like Torrey Pines and Harding Park, that just means that the players who tend to perform well at the two courses are often the same players. It doesn't necessarily mean, like, you can have totally different courses in style and all sorts of characteristics. That doesn't really matter. It's just about which players perform well at the course. And I should say for Harding Park, we that is based off of just the one WGC event, which was back in 2005. But but, but that being said, I, I do think a takeaway from that tool is that the main things that vary across courses, it seems, is the, the degree to which they favor driving distance and driving accuracy. Like those seem to be the two traits that really 
vary. And I think that's intuitive. Um, like we don't find that putting or around the green or approach is like that different across courses. There are some outliers, but usually it's distance and accuracy. And those things can be in a, in a single event of data, you can learn some stuff about that. Yeah. Just hovering over some of the courses there, it shows that basically it's, it's very incremental, but Augusta national is a golf course that favors, uh, I guess the putting is more important based on the words you just said there at Augusta national than it is an average course, but it really doesn't vary to the extent that driving distance or driving accuracy varies week to week. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Like if you look at, uh, I think Augusta might be the most extreme course for putting and it's, yeah, it's still not that extreme. Whereas if you look at El Chameleon, it's the most extreme, I think in any characteristic and, uh, it's extreme in driving accuracy, the degree to which it favors it. Um, and it's, yeah, it would dwarf the putting discrepancy from, uh, at Augusta. I think it makes sense. It's partly just cause putting is super random. So like you need more data to understand whether or not a course favors putting. And we only have whatever, 10 years of data, let's say for most of these courses. So it's, that's part of the issue. Well, I'm not used to saying this, you know, that, but the, you know, in, in August, but the, the masters is coming up here in a few months and I'm wondering uh, what you guys, what, what are your, I guess, if you were to teach someone something about Augusta that you've learned over the years, I know you guys have done some analysis on, you know, experience at Augusta, what, the, what that means and, and what the holes are that, you know, end up being the biggest variances or the biggest, most important holes, I guess. If you were to teach us a lesson or two on Augusta, what would, uh, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, I think the, we've done a blog where we looked at, cause in general course history is not as important as people think it is. But because Augusta has such a long history, especially guys like Phil and Tiger who have played it so many times, it is the one course where we would we will actually make quite large adjustments based on someone's course history and experience, as you said. Um, yeah, we also did do a, to see which holes separate players the most. Do you remember them specifically, Matt? I know one of them changed a lot after uh, they they redid it. I think hole seven, maybe. Yeah, that was a great blog. It's one of my favorite blogs on our site. I think it was. Yeah, like we had, in, like there were a few intuitive results to just make the reader trust what we were doing a bit. So like 13 is like the highest variance hole, which makes sense. Par fives are always higher variance. I think, yeah, the surprising one was hole seven was pretty high variance. And we were sort of spinning some narratives in that article. And we were trying to say that after they lengthened, what did they do to it? In 2002, they lengthened seven, I think, and they made it narrower. And that was sort of when the variance went up, which might honestly might not necessarily be a good thing. Uh, it depends what your preferences are for golf courses. And 15 was another hole where they, uh, at some point, I think they narrowed the fairway or something. They, I think the trees on the left came in more. And we saw that really decrease the variance on 15, which I think most would see as a bad thing, maybe, because it's uh, maybe it, it just made people lay up more. There was fewer chances to go for it, fewer balls in the water. But all of those insights are pretty like tentative. I wouldn't bet any amount of money on whether or not they're actually true. They're interesting, though. It is interesting. I just pulled up the article there. It's titled, Which Holes Matter Most at Augusta? And you can hover over each hole, and exactly what you said on 15. Uh, I know they planted trees, and they moved the tees back in some sequence of events between 99 and 2006. And right around 99, you can just see right there that the variance of that scoring on that hole dipped greatly, which it's still the, uh, you know, the span from 83 to 2017. It's the second most variance with 13, but... 13 looks a lot more, uh, lots uh, kind of more steady, and 15 has clearly dipped. That's very interesting. Yeah, that was the first time we'd ever really like dipped into trying to relate some data insights to uh, some course architecture stuff, which we normally stay away from. We're not really too educated in that regard, but yeah, it was interesting to look into that stuff. 
I know you mentioned some of this earlier, uh, just about course history and being predictive, uh, just kind of being a misconception. You, know, you can look at four, some of you play four rounds there and people think you're great at a certain golf course. What would you have to see? And, and you mentioned there too with Augusta that, you know, there's way more course history there and that's a place you, you value it more. But what do you wish people understood more about uh, course history? How much do you guys weigh that in your models, you know, when you're kind of laying out uh, predicting things week to week? And then from there, I think we can kind of take it into some of the, some of the predictions you guys make and how, the, how you guys incorporate betting into what you do. I think when we started out, we were really anti-course history. Our model was simpler back then and we, I, we didn't weigh it at all. We just kind of ignored it. We said basically like the, the adjustments that you, you would make off of this can basically just be uh, ignored. And I think in the last couple of years, we've changed that stance a reasonable amount. Like I would say just to get a sense of the adjustments we would make, like, like the difference between a top five player and an average player is like two shots. So that's like the skill gap we're kind of talking about. The biggest course history adjustments we would make would be like Phil at Augusta, who's had like incredibly Phil has played like a hundred rounds at Augusta and has performed like a shot above what we would expect from him based off of his performance everywhere else. And so he would get like a half shot adjustment at Augusta. We would have his skill level being different by 0.5 strokes. And that's like, that's a pretty massive difference. That's like the difference between like the 30th ranked player in our model versus the 80th or something, or maybe the hundredth, something around there. And course fit is kind of similar, like course fit. I think the differences are probably bigger with uh, course fit. Um, in terms of what we wish people understood about course history, uh, I think it's just a small sample thing. I think golf, so it's so easy to watch golf and you see a golfer play really well. It's not like they're getting lucky. Like they go to a new course and they're just playing really well. Like they're playing like a top 10 player in the world, even though they're only like the hundredth ranked player in the world. And it's very easy to believe that that difference in, in play is, is something real. But for us, like if it's under, if it's a four round sample where a guy, whatever, like Nate Lashley uh, wins at that Detroit golf club, the only four rounds he's played there. Like we're only adjusting his skill level by like maybe 0.05 or 0.1 shots. Like not a huge amount. Wow. Yeah, that's really not much. So what 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 do you guys do? I guess on your site in terms of you know building models, making predictions, and, and all that kind of. Can you walk people? I understand that you probably get a lot of betters that come to your website looking for information and stuff like that. I know you have a subscription service uh, with that. So kind of explain how that works. Yeah, so each week we'll have, we make our predictions. So we give it, we assign a probability to, to each player of winning the event, top 10ing, uh, making the cut, finishing in the top 20. And then we'll also show how those odds line up to various sports books. So you can see, say, we, only, we think Justin Thomas has a 10% chance of winning this week, and DraftKings says 9%, then that would be something we would recommend to bet on i'm not saying you should always trust it but i think we basically what we do is we provide a really reliable and solid baseline and then yeah if you have either it's like some inside information or something you disagree with in terms of course fit or you want to adjust someone's course history you can make little tweaks off of that i think that's how we would ideally have people using our website not just straight up trusting it yeah yeah no i think that's that's a good summary and i think in terms of what goes into the model it's like the starting point for like so much of what's on our site is the, the true strokes gain stuff that I mentioned at the start of the podcast. Like we're basically just for each golfer, maybe like 80 or 85% of their predicted skill level is based off of just their round score, like true stroke gain numbers, how they played over the last two years. And then we're making tweaks based off of how they are off the tee versus around the green versus putting, just because as we alluded to, like those differ in how predictive they are going forward. 
And then the final 5% or so is, is going to be course fit, course history stuff. Um, and yeah, like Will said, like people, you can improve upon our stuff. It's not like our model is the gold standard. It's like a really solid baseline, but there are, golf's a very complicated sport that obviously can't be reduced to just the simplicity that our, our model represents. So people can always improve upon, I think, what we're doing. Yeah, I think it, it you said it kind of near the beginning too with how random golf is. You can't take his stuff literally at face value, right? It's all factors into like, hey, here is where an efficiency inefficiency might be. This might not pay off the first time, but you know, if you do this invoke this strategy maybe over 10 weeks it might pay off, blah blah blah. Do you guys ever watch our DraftKings stuff and just like roll your eyes and and just shake your head at what whatever we're picking? Uh, depends who's talking. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Let's go. You can go person by person. No, I, no. I'm in last place, so I got to be. You oh, got to be are. the one that you're shaking the head at the most. Yeah, we don't know the standing, so I shouldn't say anything too, too substantial. I, <laughs> I would have rolled my eyes at some of the bets Neil's making, but he is a, the new leader in the clubhouse now. So how could I do that? Yeah, I mean, one thing we've learned is that it takes a really long time to realize if a strategy is like positive expected value. Yeah, like you said, especially if you're betting on long shots. But I know you guys do matchups and stuff like that, which is you'll find out if you're positive expected value quicker that way. But yeah, it, it is hard because, like you said, like, one week we'll see that we, like, we have value on Bronson Burgoon to top 20, and then he plays terrible. And then the next week we still have value on him, and just, so we keep on betting on him. So we bet on Bronson Burgoon probably like, probably the last 10 events and yeah it does get taxing mentally because you're watching this guy just play pretty poorly every week but then the model you sometimes just gotta trust the model i guess hmm. would your world ranking system if you guys were making a world ranking system would it look way different than what the official world golf ranking system looks like no i think it would be pretty similar we actually we actually did a big analysis for them at some point like a year and a half ago just to see how fair their system was i i kind of think the OWGR kind of gets a hard time because the main difference between our rankings and theirs is just that winning gets rewarded much more in uh, in their ranking than it does in ours. But I think that's the way it should be because that's just how sports are. Like winning is what matters, even though it's it's not necessarily the most predictive thing going forward, but it's it is what matters. And the other big difference is, uh, which is quite interesting, is that like we we definitely find the lower ranked tours, so the international ones especially, get way too many world ranking points. Like like the Japan tour is extremely overvalued, uh, according to our stuff, sunshine tour. The, and then the PJ tour is sort of getting the short end of the stick as far as world ranking points go. And actually I think the corn might be the worst. Yeah. Our biggest discrepancy right now, Will Zalatoris is 34th in our rankings and he's 159th in the world golf ranking. But yeah, I think he's in like the sweet spot of getting pretty screwed over, I guess, by the rankings. But like Matt said, it, it's, a, it's a hard system for them to solve, and, and changing it is obviously risky as well for them. So yeah, we don't like to criticize it too much. Yeah, and the, the, its defense is that it's, you know, it's for handicapping events more than it is a power rankings, right? It's for entries into events, and there's better... It, it, if you're ranked seventh in the world, it doesn't mean you're the seventh best player in the world right now. It's just based on how many times you've beat other players, blah, blah, blah. But I think it could use some tweaking, that's for sure. I don't know if it needs a major overhaul, but... Uh, to some of the points you're saying, it, yeah, a lot of tours are getting drastically overrated in it, and uh, any chance I get to kind of get that jab in there, I, I gladly do that. I, I kind of asked you guys if you had any accumulation of some of your favorite stats you've come across. I don't know if you guys have anything specific, but uh, as a stats nerd, uh, appreciator of stats, I should say, I'm wondering if you have any you could share with us. I have a good one about Ricky. So, because Ricky, I feel like, has been getting a bit of a 
hard time lately. So Ricky's made, I think, 250 starts on the PJ Tour, and he has 112 top 20s. And through 250 starts, Phil Mickelson had 114 top 20s. So we have graphs on our site that show people's career trajectories. And Ricky, in terms of top 20s, is, is exactly over. He's exactly tracking Phil's career trajectory, which, okay, of course, if you did this with wins, Ricky is getting crushed by Phil. But I, I'm still, I was like blown away by this, that, that his career trajectory is pretty much the same as Phil's. And I mean, the amazing thing about Phil's trajectory, though, is that it just continues for like 35 years. Somehow Phil hasn't stopped getting top 20. The rate at which he gets top 20s just hasn't stopped somehow, even though he's 50. I don't know how, how much longer it's going to continue. So that, that for me is we're generally not guys who have uh, like stats in that respect. I think just these catchy interesting one-liners but i don't know to me that was it made me think ricky's pretty underrated well how how do you connect the the dots there then for somebody that is constantly top 20 top 10 and to a lesser extent finale that hasn't won as much as people maybe think they should have how do you i i don't know how to explain those players basically it's like yeah they're really good they just are not very good at beating everyone in a particular week is there any way that you guys, I guess, anyone else that sticks out that comes to mind uh, aside from those guys? And how do you explain those kinds of players? Yeah, like Charles Howell III is a more extreme example. Like that guy has been a solid player for so long. And yet he literally, there, it, it, there's 0% chance he, he wins uh, a major. And it's, I, I don't know. I, I, we can't really explain it, I don't think. Um, it's something we should look into. Or Will was mentioning that, that page we're working on with pressure. Uh, we're going to do some player-specific stuff there, so maybe some interesting things would come out of that. But I, I don't know. For a guy like Ricky, I think you have to start assuming that he just does not play as well on Sundays as other guys. I think that obviously that's been true like so far, but I think it'll probably continue going forward. It is something real, I think. Well, it's interesting because Ricky, like when you think of him, like no big choking moments come to mind. He just kind of fades, like. He's just he's he's up there and then he'll just bleed out for like a few holes and then he's dropped from the telecast kind of. And then there's other guys like who have more of a reputation for choking. And yeah, I don't know. It is also one of those things again where you gotta remember there's all these PGA tour players, someone's bound to win less than they should be winning. It's just that's just the but then it it is really hard to defend a case like Ricky's, where it's just like yeah, he's just not winning anywhere near as much as he should be given the positions he's been in and just how good he is in general. Yeah. How do you do that on your site? How do you compare like Ricky projection versus Phil or something like that? Yeah, it's pretty hidden because it's not a, it's a really old web page that we don't like. It's under uh, interactives and then more interactives <laughs> and then career revolutions. Oh, I uh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty sweet page. When we first came out with it, we thought, I mean, Will and I always have this thought, but whenever we produce some new content, we think it's going to really go viral, but it doesn't usually ever happen. But uh, <laughs> th- this one, actually, one the one that did, though, was uh, our, career money, our career money evolution. That one went pretty viral. Yeah, every time I, I go on to here, I get like kind of down a wormhole and lost, and I just think, all right, I got to come back to this, got to come back to this, and I go away for a while, then I come back again, and I'm like, oh my god, I forgot how in-depth all this was. Now I see this exact line that you're drawing here between uh, even top five finishes between Phil and, and uh, Ricky being almost perfectly in line up to 200 career starts. Ricky's kind of fallen off a little bit since then, but whoa, that's kind of jarring. There's also probably not a better plot to show how good Tiger is than this one. Just yes. Like, yeah. He's just, everything about him was just at another level. Although Rom actually started his career with pretty similar top 20 and top five rates, but 
I don't think anyone will ever touch Tiger's win record. That's for sure. Yeah, gosh, and just hearing you guys talk about Rom, bring him up a couple times. It sounds like you guys appreciate him more than uh, most people probably do. Yeah, we've been saying he's super underrated for a while. Just to start his career, he like, yeah, he just right away he was a top five player in the world. Like he was, Will said earlier, he was thirty fourth, I guess, when he turned pro. When he was ending his amateur career, he was thirty fourth in the world according to our stuff. And then, and he's so solid. The reason I think we're all so high on him is just he does it through like off the tee and approach stuff, which is just, I don't know, distance doesn't really go anywhere. So it's, it should be pretty reliable going forward. Yeah. And, and we do career projections too. And I think he's our, when we did them, we only update them once a year. He was our number one guy for our five-year projection at the end wow. of last year. What, uh, any more stats, uh, that you guys have, uh, ready for us? Uh, yeah, I have one tiger stat. So in 2007 and 2008, and 2008 was an abbreviated season for tiger. He was averaging, we're not averaging, his skill level, according to our model, in strokes and approach was plus two, which, as I mentioned earlier, plus two is sort of, that's the, that's sort of our benchmark for a top five player in the world. So, insanely, what Tiger was doing was gaining enough strokes just off approach shots to be a top five player in the world. So, if he was just gaining nothing anywhere else, he would have been a top five player in the world just due to that. And just another reference point, like right now, Thomas, Justin Thomas is our best approach player. Uh, and he's at plus one strokes game per round. So that's a pretty jarring Tiger stat, just how good his approach game was. You could do a, I think we could do a whole pod probably just on uh, straight Tiger stats. But uh, last one, I'll let you guys out of here on this. If listeners can take away anything we've talked about or anything you guys have come across in stats and take it home for their own game personally, what would uh, what would you say that would be? Probably just that golf is really random. So when you go out tomorrow and shoot 90, don't worry about it too much. Uh, you'll probably come back and shoot your average the next day. But but in all seriousness, that, that is my biggest, I think, takeaway just from all the analysis that we've done is just, just how many ideas you might have about what is important for golf performance going forward in terms of predicting things. And it's just, I don't know, it always surprises me how little predictive power things have. So even though Phil looked really good last Sunday, let's say, uh, I didn't watch his round, but he scored well. It may have very little bearing on what he's going to do uh, going forward. So that would kind of be my takeaway. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. Just don't get too high. Don't get too low. You're going to go back to your baseline. <laughs> yep, that makes sense. Well, I'm going to let you guys go because I'm going to go play around with this PGA Tour Career Evolutions uh, website here for the next couple hours, I have a feeling. So I uh, really appreciate everything you guys do. Uh, again, it's datagolf.com uh, if you guys want to check them out. Appreciate you guys coming on, sharing some insights with the folks as well. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 